Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California launches a rape kit testing site to keep victims informed. Now we have a resource where we can track where our kits are. We're empowered with that information. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Could rent pricing software be helping to raise rents illegally? It's very likely if you're in one of these markets where rent growth has also been very fast that you're going to encounter this software somewhere, whether you know it or not. An election explainer report on the San Diego County Assessor's Race and the San Diego Asian Film Festival returns with movies at pre-pandemic numbers. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California has just introduced a way for survivors of sexual assault to track the testing of evidence in their cases. An online DNA tracking system now allows victims to see where their rape kits are in the system, from being received by law enforcement to the completion of DNA analysis. The law also requires that rape kits be submitted for testing within 120 days. The legislation signed by Governor Newsom is designed to stop new rape kits from being backlogged, but it does not address the 14,000 older rape kits still left untested by law enforcement agencies across the state. Joining me now to talk about this is Natasha Alexenko, U.S. Programming Advisor for Voice Amplified and author of the book, A Survivor's Story, From Victim to Advocate. She's also a sponsor of the bill that led to the rape kit tracking system. And Natasha, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, remind us, if you would, how rape kits are used to help solve sexual assault cases. Well, typically a rape kit is basically when a survivor's body has become the crime scene. Um, So evidence is collected from our bodies. Um, At that time, also 
questions are asked regarding the assault itself, uh, where the assailant may have touched us or, um, you know, kissed us in certain areas so that DNA can specifically be drawn from some cases. Um, And in that um, sexual assault evidence kit, um, you know, all the DNA is contained as well as some, you know, verbal information as well. Um, And that kit is sent to a laboratory um, where the DNA is uploaded into the national um, database, which is called CODIS. Um, And CODIS hosts a variety of DNA profiles. And oftentimes, if the offender is unknown to the victim, as the case was for me, um, a match can be made on that um, rape kit. Um, and of course, if if the um, perpetrator is known to the survivor, um, then it, it can verify that indeed um, a sexual assault took place. Before this legislation, what was the procedure like for survivors after the evidence was collected? In the case of my kits and so many other sexual assault evidence kits across the country, um, mine sat on a shelf collecting dust for nearly a decade. Um, My kit was joined by 11,000 other sexual assault evidence kits in New York City that were also collecting dust. Um, And again, you know, every every rape kit um, contains um, a victim whose body was the crime scene and and pains and and difficulties in having to do rape kit after the case. Um, and then in my case, I had no idea that uh, it was sitting on a shelf for 10 years. I was unaware of the fact there was certainly not a mechanism in place to track where my kit was in the system. So after 10 years, when we did not find the man that raped and robbed me at gunpoint, um, I just assumed it was the fault lied with me um, and that it was my fault. Um, we had not um, found him. I did not know my rape kit wasn't tested. And I will let you know, and every, every survivor goes through the healing process in, a, in differently. But for me, the hardest challenge in my just feeling better and coming back into myself was just getting rid of the blame. Now, Natasha, you were here in California for the announcement of this new DNA tracking system. What can you tell us about what it means to survivors of sexual assault to have access to this information about the status of the evidence collected in their case? There are just no words to describe what it means. And and certainly we can talk about the fact that now we have a resource where we can track where our kits are we're empowered with that information. And that's a part of it. And that's an important part. There's also this component about being supported and believed and to be placed in such high regard that we are given a piece of this investigative process. Um, We are invited to this tip. We are invited to the table. We are part of this multidisciplinary team um, that's involved in solving sexual assault um, cases um, and that we're just not merely a prop that's brought out uh, to elicit emotions through our stories, that we're actually like part of the solution. The new legislation provides information on rape kits collected after 2018, but it doesn't address the thousands of kits in California backlogged before that. Is that a missing piece in this puzzle, and how is that going to be resolved? 
Yes. Uh, you know, it certainly is a, a missing piece. It's 14,000 human beings um, who are waiting for justice, who, you know, went and did a rape kit, despite the fact that their first instinct was likely to take a shower and move forward. I mean, they did this, they went forward with it. And what's amazing, even, you know, taking away just this aspect of, of wanting to respect someone who's gone through such a horrible ordeal, is just a public safety issue. So if you have these unprocessed rape kits, in the, in the case of my case of the man who assaulted me, um, in the interim, in the 10 years my kids sat collecting dust, he was on a nationwide crime spree. I mean, he was harming other people. He was putting people in danger. He was creating additional victims. I've been speaking with Natasha Alexenko, U.S. Programming Advisor for Voice Amplified and author of the book, A Survivor's Story. Natasha, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. If you're a renter, then there's a good chance your rent has gone up at some point over the past few years. It's a trend that highlights the often contentious relationship between landlord and tenant. But a recent ProPublica report suggests that a widely used rent pricing software is actually helping to drive up costs in rental markets across the country, potentially in violation of federal law. Joining me now with more is ProPublica reporter Heather Vogel, who covers the rental housing market. Heather, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's start first with this rent pricing software. What is it and how does it work? So this is basically a version of the type of software we've all become acquainted with when we're shopping for uh, airline tickets, hotels, where you know that there is some sort of algorithm running in the background that is estimating supply and demand matching you with a price. Now, this is basically the same type of software, price optimization software, as it's called, but it's for landlords who are trying to price their apartments. And this software will run in the background every night. It will suggest a new price for every available unit that a landlord has in their building, for instance. I mean, how widely used is this software? It's called YieldStar. Uh, I mean, can you give us a sense of how many renters could possibly be impacted by landlords using this technology? I think that it's very widely used in some markets. You know, what we do know is that some of the biggest landlords in the country use it and that a lot of their buildings are concentrated in these cities where we've seen a lot of rent growth in recent years. I know that Graystar is the largest property manager in the country and they have hundreds of thousands of units all over the country. And it would be a pretty good bet that they have some buildings in San Diego. Tenants often renegotiate rental rates with their landlords at the end of a lease. This system effectively negates that exchange. Uh, Can you talk a bit more about that? The company, RealPage, that makes the software, the rent setting software, which is commonly known as YieldStar, uh, they actually discourage property managers and landlords from negotiating with tenants because they say you should set the price using their software and then stick to it. I think they call it bottom line pricing. So, you know, really, this is kind of an end run around the leasing agents who historically have been the ones who have negotiated with tenants and sort of figured out where uh, to set that rent price, depending on the circumstances, their sense of what demand is in the area, maybe their history with a tenant uh, or the tenant's history with other landlords, things like that. Um, But 
you know, if, if you're using this software, the company at least is encouraging you to not bargain and not negotiate. Is there any sense that algorithms like this have played any role in exacerbating the housing crisis? The company itself does a couple things that you know, may lead you to ask that question. One of them is that they tell their clients that they are, will be able to beat the market by 3 to 7%, outperform the market, beat the market. Those are the types of language. That's the type of language that they're using. Um, so they're, they're, they're saying that they are able to drive the rents high enough that landlords are able to make more than they would otherwise if they were, you know, operating at more competitive levels. The other thing that they're doing is, you know, we found something that the former CEO for this company said during an earnings call where he was talking about one of their biggest clients and saying that, well, you know, when they started using Yieldstar, they realized that it made more sense for them to not operate at 97, 98% occupancy, but to actually raise the rent prices and leave a few more units off the market a little longer, that was actually a way for them to make a lot more money. Now, experts say that the way this system operates could potentially lead to collusion or antitrust violations. What can you tell us about that? The uh, feature of the software that is perhaps most leading them to ask this question is that Yieldstar and RealPages software, which it's it's since rebranded with a different name, but what it does is it pulls in a trove of data from its clients. And this is data that they don't normally share and make public. It's the actual rents that they are able to obtain from their tenants, not just the asking rents that you see on apartments.com, but their true rent roll. That gets pulled into this algorithm and is part of the process of setting the price in a way that allows a building to perhaps match its competitors in a very tight area in a sort of small geographic area. So basically what it will do is it will allow these competitors to essentially have an influence in the pricing of a unit, which is not something that you typically see, even with this software, that you have this private data that is becoming part of the mix. And that's led to a number of critics saying, hey, this software could be causing antitrust problems. And in fact, uh, yesterday, a letter was sent from a senator, the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, to the Federal Trade Commission asking them to review this type of software to see if it is violating antitrust laws. This story really seems to highlight the disconnect between struggling renters and large-scale property managers. Uh, Is this just becoming the norm in urban rental markets? I think it may be becoming the norm. I think that this company has had really tremendous growth in recent years and that it's very likely if you're in one of these markets where rent growth has also been very fast, that you're going to encounter this software somewhere, whether you know it or not. I've been speaking with Heather Vogel, a ProPublica reporter who covers the rental housing market. Heather, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego County Assessor Ernie Dronenberg is retiring after 12 years on the job. He gained headlines once in 2013 for filing a legal action against issuing same-sex marriage licenses. Since that time, however, the county assessor's job has settled back into its low profile. Now voters are being asked to choose Dronenberg's successor. 
The choice is between the deputy county assessor and a former San Diego City Council member. And joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, looking at the ballot, I think voters might wonder, what is a county assessor? What does the job entail? Uh, As you alluded to, it is a very low-profile job. It's not something that's involved with a whole lot of policy making, uh, but it does have a lot to do with policy implementation. So uh, the assessor part of the job, and and the official office is assessor, recorder, county clerk. Um, The assessor part of the job has to do with assessing the value of properties and determining how much uh, the owners of those properties owe in property taxes. Uh, The recorder and county clerk parts of the job are uh, have to do with issuing marriage licenses, birth certificates, death certificates, and also registering business names with the county. So it's a very administrative or technocratic job. The two candidates for the office are Jordan Marks and Barbara Bray. First, tell us about Jordan Marks. So Jordan Marks, is uh, he started his career working for the Board of Equalization, which is the state agency that administers uh, California's taxation system. And he was auditing, basically, county assessors, making sure that they were doing things right. Uh, he now works for the county, county assessor's office. He's the chief deputy uh, assessor. Uh, and that job description next, next to his name on the ballot, I think, will definitely be a big help for him because it seems like he's almost an incumbent, although he, he isn't quite. And so he says, you know, his pitch to voters is that uh, he knows how to give good customer service. And uh, here's a bit of what he told me when I interviewed him. When I got to the office and they said, we need a new website. Well, we budgeted for it. We planned for it. Minus the slowdown from the pandemic, we got there for the taxpayers because that is great customer service, hearing what you could do better and delivering that. So does Marx believe his big advantage in the race is his experience? I think, yes, that is the selling point uh, on his part, that he is working in the office now. He knows how how it works. Uh, he can get the ball rolling on day one and, and have a smooth transition. And, uh, you know, like I said, that, um, that uh, job title on the ballot does carry a lot of weight, especially for these positions that people don't really know a whole lot about. What about Barbara Bree? Voters will know her name from the San Diego mayor's race in 2020. Yeah, Barbara Bree has been a very long-time entrepreneur. She founded several businesses, and uh, in 2016, she entered politics. She started. Uh, she ran for the city council district one, which is uh, La Jolla and the sort of no- north coastal neighborhoods in the city. She won that race and was on the city council for four years. Uh, she ran for mayor in 2020 unsuccessfully. She she lost to Todd Gloria, and uh, she says that she had never planned to run for office again, but that folks approached her in the last couple of years uh, saying, you know, that they thought that this office needs new leadership. She says that she does. She has done a lot of research on the job of, of assessor, recorder, clerk, and uh, one of the things that she thinks needs to change is technology, that they need to update technology, and in particular, she she mentioned the example of what happens when a city issues a building permit for a property. That triggers a reassessment of the property, and the assessor's office needs to know when that happens. So here's what she says she thinks uh, needs to change there. Each city communicates with the assessor's office in a different way, and in some cases it was the U.S. mail. And that's not acceptable in the 21st century. What if a piece of paper gets lost? 
How big a factor does political affiliation play in the choice of a county assessor compared with other county offices? All locally elected offices in California are officially nonpartisan, meaning that you uh, do not see a Democrat or Republican next to either candidate's name. However, one of the big questions that we're uh, asking in San Diego County, if folks who are who are observing politics, is what is San Diego County voters' tolerance for Republicans in elected office? In 2018 and 2020, we saw a lot of Republicans uh, lose elected office in part because they were in the same party as Donald Trump, who is not popular in San Diego County. And so, uh, even in a in a race like this, where Jordan Marks is is not talking about Trump, Trump. Is not on the ballot. Uh, You know, he has nothing to do with Trump. And ultimately, the office doesn't really have anything to do with Trump either. Just the fact that he is a Republican, I think in 2022 is something of a liability for candidates. So it'll be interesting to see whether that has any bearing on the outcome of this race. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, thanks. My pleasure, Maureen. This election season, county clerks in Northern California have reported hearing about so-called voter integrity groups. As Eric Newman from Jefferson Public Radio reports, the activity has been seen as voter intimidation by some. Kathy Darling-Allen first heard about the door knockers in late September. The Shasta County clerk says she got reports of three residents' homes being visited in the small town of Anderson and one in Redding. Two people came to their front door knocked on their door wearing yellow kind of reflective vests and uh, IDs around their neck that say voter task force. And they're pretty aggressively questioning the people who live there. She says the handful of residents felt singled out and targeted by the voter groups. This is not a situation where the folks were going door to door. They they drove to their their homes, got out of the car right in front of their homes, that kind of thing. Darling Allen says the targeted door knocking happening in Shasta County amounts to voter intimidation and could be illegal under California election laws. She reported the incidents to state and federal authorities. Similar so-called voter integrity groups have been active just north of here in southern Oregon. At least some of these actions were inspired by national activists. One is Doug Frank, a conspiracy theorist who has been traveling the country promoting the idea that there is widespread fraud occurring in elections across the U.S. My specialty is coaching local groups on finding real, actionable election fraud. Fraud they can take to their sheriffs, their election officials, and local courts. Frank visited Shasta County in mid-September before County Clerk Kathy Darling-Allen heard about the door knocking. He wore his trademark American flag bow tie and gave a presentation to the Shasta County Board of Supervisors. Frank says he uses election records and census data to look for irregularities in voting records. Then he compiles local addresses for canvassers to check for voter fraud. The local citizens will be bringing you hundreds of cases of undeniable fraud. There's no evidence to support Frank's accusations that local elections were stolen. And the analysis behind his conclusions is flawed, says Justin Grimmer, a political science professor at Stanford. There's no truth to Doug Frank's claims. Grimmer has written several papers about Frank's methodology. He says it's based on a mathematical analysis of voting numbers that will, in essence, always suggest that there's been manipulation, whether those numbers come from Shasta or any other election. It's just that he's chosen a statistical method 
that will always give a, a particular value. And he's decided to interpret that as evidence of fraud when really it's not evidence of much of anything. Despite these voter integrity groups looking for fraud in the 2020 election, Grimmer says this is also meant to discredit future campaigns. I think a lot of the work that he's doing now, including talking regularly with election officials throughout the country and mobilizing these local activists is to lay the groundwork for objections to 2022. Ryan Ronco is the clerk of Placer County, east of Sacramento, another place Doug Frank focused on to recruit residents. He says if they're concerned, residents should come to his office to see how Placer County protects the vote. I just think that it's a shame if people feel that the election is rigged without coming into their local office to at least ask the questions. When residents do that, he says, they generally leave satisfied that their local election is being run safely. Ronco says right now it's on every California registrar to increase their transparency. So that we can be able to begin this process of allowing people who feel disenfranchised or disengaged from the process right now back in so that their voices can be heard. Voters in California can call their local clerk's office to arrange a tour. They can also be an observer on Election Day. I'm Eric Newman. Academic excellence is now riding on the wheels of some gnarly skateboards at a school in the La Mesa Spring Valley School District. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez tells us about the new Parkway Sports and Health Science Academy. There's a distinct sound to a skateboard rolling on a smooth ride over an asphalt-paved playground, as well as the abrupt sound when that ride is over. 12-year-old Paxton Hart lost his balance practicing skateboard flips that turned into some flops. When I'm on the skateboard, I just feel the wind in my face. I want to go fast. I want to do tricks. So I've just been learning. You know, I just love getting my blood flowing. I just love that. Paxton is rolling and riding for credit in his seventh grade engineering and skateboarding class. One of a dozen electives added this fall at the new Parkway Sports and Health Science Academy in the La Mesa Spring Valley School District. For the past 60 years, it was simply Parkway Middle School. Parkway Middle School has always been a great school, but how do we take it to the next level? That's Parkway principal Jacob Ruth, who got his job in the middle of the COVID crisis a couple of years ago. School shutdowns and the resulting mental health and social-emotional breakdown of students got Ruth and his teaching staff thinking, how could they help in recovery and bring new life to an old school? We have a big group of skateboarders at our school, and that's a big thing. And so connecting to that social activity and the ability to make friends and skate, but also think about that in an academic way, has been really powerful. The rebranding and redevelopment of Parkway is not just about skateboarding. Besides all the core subjects like reading, math, and science, the master plan includes other electives like history and hiking, the finance literacy of baseball, and sports medicine. Our stirrups, we want these to overlap. So we On this day, Nicole Lindsay is teaching 30 students the types of athletic injuries that require them to wrap ankles. I see your anchors look very nice. They're all lined up. They're overlapping. Lindsay is also a certificated PE teacher at the Parkway Academy. We have a lot of athletes at this school who participate in outside activities. And so they're able to apply their knowledge to either their friends or themselves or teammates. 
Scissors up front. Just grab it. Engineering teacher Patrick Martin is also a longtime skateboarder. In class, he gives lessons on the dynamics and function of skateboarding. Right now, students are designing models of a skate park using cardboard, paper, straws, and hot glue to create replicas. The education value is learning about scale, how things are put together. We are assembling them, so they're working as designers, they're working as engineers, they're seeing how they need to be supported, how the pieces fit together. Then it's outside to practice. Eighth grader Isabella Culver had never skated. About a year ago, she started watching her cousin in action. Now she has her own skateboard and a desire to master this new skill. I think considering where I started, I have grown a lot. What is it like to be on a skateboard? What do you feel? I think the motion, like the way the board rides. I want to say empowering. It makes you feel good. The idea for a radical change from middle school to a specialized sports and health science academy came from the teachers and staff, who then got the support of parents and the community, and final approval from the La Mesa Spring Valley School Board. In its first semester this fall, enrollment increased by 80 students who wanted to be included in the new curriculum. Next year, the Parkway Academy will add a sixth-grade class to the mix. Principal Ruth says it is geared to preparing middle schoolers for a better academic future. With sports, it's not only about winning and being the best. It's learning how to be a good teammate, how to collaborate, how to communicate, how to really kind of persevere and be resilient when things get tough. The distinct sound of success on four wheels. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The 23rd Annual San Diego Asian Film Festival kicks off on Thursday with the documentary Bad Acts at the San Diego Natural History Museum. This year's festival returns to pre-pandemic numbers with more than 130 films from more than 30 countries and screening at four venues. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando speaks with the festival's artistic director, Brian Hu, about some of those films. Brian, you are about to launch this year's San Diego Asian Film Festival. But before we talk about the films, I wanted you to remind people of the breadth of the festival in terms of the different countries that are actually represented. Yeah, usually when people think about Asian cinema or Asian anything, they think about Chinese, Korean, Japanese. But one of our goals is to remind everybody that Asia is the biggest continent in the world, and they're making movies everywhere, and really good ones at that. So obviously we need to talk about India. 
Um, India is one of the biggest producers of film in the world. And India makes more than just Bollywood films. India has this bustling new independent film scene, films made in multiple languages. And so we've got a couple of films from India. We have films from Afghanistan, films from Indonesia. Uh, we, we also especially want to highlight the films from the Pacific Islands. So we have uh, work from New Zealand. And I, I would say the heart of our festival are, is actually the films from um, Asian American, Asian Canadian filmmakers. This is a film festival that is largely uh, founded and organized by Asian Americans. And I think uh, one of our goals is to give a platform for marginalized voices here in the United States. I mean, Asian Americans don't have huge visibility in Hollywood or in the mainstream media. So those filmmakers and artists who will go out there to put themselves on the screen, we want to give them a platform as well. And one film that you have comes from Australia, which is We Are Still Here. And talk about this. This is like an anthology film. We've seen a number of anthology films coming from the Pacific Islands recently. I guess the idea is when you have so many young new filmmakers who are just dying to have a chance to tell their stories why don't you just put like 10 of them in one in one movie (laughs) Um, and so usually what we get is like a feature-length film from New Zealand for instance with eight short films together and together they show a kaleidoscope of the Maori experience but this one is a little bit more ambitious than that Yes, they're putting, they're allowing filmmakers from New Zealand, Australia, Samoa to each have their own little short piece, but they're woven together in a way that they're overlapping. One begins, another, and then stops halfway. Another one begins, and then it resumes later on. And the really ambitious part about it is, uh, I think they take as an impetus like um, Captain Cook's arrival in the Pacific Islands as a kind of like spark to indigenous people having a voice. But then that cascades into talking about anti-colonial resistance. And then that that turns into this like um, incredible imagining of what the future might look like. So it has this kind of a sci-fi element too, has animation. Yeah, so not only does it show that there are many voices in the Pacific Islands, uh, indigenous voices, but that they're really thinking outside of the box. And it's not just like, we'll give you money. We should give you money to make indigenous films. We should give you money to make any kind of movies because you can make animation and sci-fi and and everything else. So those are young filmmakers, or at least filmmakers who are just starting out. But you also have a showcase on the masters. And this is great because it may introduce a new generation of people to filmmakers who have a great body of work and have been making films for years or decades. Yeah, um, I mean, the masters section is where we have we show films by filmmakers like Jafar Panahi. I mean, he's for decades now, he's been one of the great filmmakers of the world. He comes from Iran. But in the last decade or so, uh, he's probably best known as one of the filmmakers in Iran who've constantly been targeted by the government for his for being outspoken um, about things like f- freedom of speech. He's constantly being put on house arrest. In fact, I think after he made his new film, New Bears, which is the one we're showing, um, he's been put in prison again for defending the rights of artists. And his films are sort of about that, but not really about that, right? I think he's really savvy about, like, let's not directly tackle these most sensitive questions, but like, how do we use allegory? How do we talk about freedom in different kinds of ways? They're all coded. So Jafar Panahi is clearly a master of that kind of filmmaking, but we also have films by Chen Min Ha, by Lav Diaz, by Hong Sang-soo, um, so many more. And you have a section called Classics Restored, and this is 
really exciting for me because I love the old Hong Kong, like new wave films that came out. And you have two that feature Johnny Toe and starring Michelle Yeoh. So talk about Executioners and Heroic Trio. Oh my goodness. All right, so so we have this section called Classic Restored. And it's usually, you know, like some, the, the important films of the past that pe- people have put thousands of dollars into restoring because... I mean, like, in the United States, Hollywood is constantly investing in their libraries because they can still make money off of them. In Asia, it's not necessarily the case. And not only does that mean we don't have access to these films, it means we don't even know what the classics are. The Heroic Trio and Executioners, these are not films you would normally think of as the important films of world cinema. Oh, but they are. These are just the wildest 1990s Hong Kong action movies. Not necessarily like in terms of just breathtaking action, but also just these are a little deranged. But most of all, it has just the three most spectacular stars of Hong Kong cinema. I would say of of cinema anywhere in the 1990s. You mentioned Michelle Yeoh, and Michelle Yeoh is having a moment right now. She was in this year's surprise hit, Everything Everywhere All at Once. So it's got her. It also stars Anita Moy, who recently had a huge biopic made about her that we showed at our Spring Showcase in April. And then it also stars the one and only Maggie Chung. And to see the three of them at their the peak of their powers, kicking butt, just being totally memorable, on top of the fact that there's a director like Johnny Toe just allowing them to do the most deranged things, I'd say this is a classic. And for me, like growing up in a you know, Chinese household, I remember watching these movies on like VHS tapes or VCD, just like not good quality, but you know, whatever, Your parents wanted me to learn Chinese. So to see this film now on like a 4K restoration on a big screen, we just tested the film yesterday, it looks incredible. And then the fact that there's a, the, the sequel, <laughs> Executioners, also has a 4K restoration. I mean, this is, this is too irresistible. We're showing both and it's selling well and we know that the audience is gonna have such a great time. Well, and I've always appreciated that you highlight his films all the time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> When you are programming the festival, how is it to put it together? Because it's kind of like making a mixtape. You want to have a nice balance of elements to draw people in. So what is it like for a programmer? What are the challenges you have in putting that together? Yeah, the mixtape is an interesting comparison because in some ways I have to think about like, it's a mixtape that can satisfy different audiences too, right? So yeah, there is a balance of different genres, different countries, but also have different sensibilities. So some people who just, they don't really care about the art that much. <laughs> they just want to like laugh and, and cry and be scared. And, and I totally respect that. And I have films for you too. But I think privately, like mixtapes are also for the people making it, making the mixtape. So there's something about this too. Like, these are just the ones that spoke to me. They're kind of a personal, like the 2022 these are the movies that gave me life. And I want to put it out there too. And, you know, some people might not care about all these movies, but I, I take each selection very, uh, they come from a personal place for me too. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about this year's San Diego Asian Film Festival. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brian Hu. The San Diego Asian Film Festival runs November 3rd through the 12th with its home base at the Ultra Star Mission Valley and additional screenings in Balboa Park and UC San Diego. The 
late musician and activist Ramon Chunky Sanchez is already a fixture in San Diego Chicano history. Now a new documentary is introducing him and his music to a wider audience. The PBS film Singing Our Way to Freedom follows Sanchez from his beginnings as a child of Mexican immigrants to his association with United Farm Workers President Cesar Chavez and ultimately his being named as a National Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for the Arts. And along the way, his songs and steadfast activism were pivotal in the creation of San Diego's own National Historic Landmark, Chicano Park. Here's a clip from the film's trailer. Chunky is absolutely Cesar Chavez's favorite musician. Whenever there was any kind of an event that the farm workers were having, Cesar would always call and say, can you get Chunky to come up and play for us? The strikes, we'd be with the picketers in front of the fields out there. People would be holding the loudspeakers. Pretty soon you'd see them coming out of the fields. Just kind of captured the spirit of what the whole struggle was about. And within a very short time, he starts to become an icon. I realized that you could take from both sides of the border and combine them and come up with a new style of music. And joining me is Paul Espinosa. He's director of the documentary Singing Our Way to Freedom. And Paul, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Marie. Nice to be with you today. Now, Chunky Sanchez sang about freedom just about everywhere he could for 40 years. What motivated his journey? Well, I think Chunky was in the right place at the right time. And when he came to San Diego State in 1970, it was really the height of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. And he just kind of fit right in. He made connections with people there at San Diego State who were involved with music. He joined a musical group, La Rondalla Amerindia de Atzlan. In a very short period of time, he and the La Rondalla were traveling to the Central Valley and other places to basically play at demonstrations with Cesar Chavez. did he meet Cesar Chavez? Well, he met Cesar Chavez, actually, even before he got to San Diego. Cesar Chavez came to Blythe. Basically, at that time, he was he was traveling around, certainly around the state and actually around the Southwest, trying to organize farm workers. And Chunky has a very vivid memory of Chavez coming to Blythe and basically, you know, arguing for better working conditions for, for farm workers. And of course, this certainly was something that uh, Chunky was very eager to hear, I think. And like many people who were aware of the working conditions and the living conditions of many farm workers, what Chavez Travis had to say really, you know, rang a bell for them.
hear in your documentary that uh, Chunky became uh, Cesar Chavez's go-to for a musical act during his rallies. What part did music play in the United Farm Workers' struggle? I think music played a very important role. I mean, certainly we're well aware of Cesar Chavez here in California. We now have a state holiday for Cesar Chavez. But I think music is something that, in retrospect, maybe doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. I think uh, Chavez was very aware that when he was having you know rallies and talks, that it was important to have musicians come on stage and really kind of inspire and engage the audience. Chavez would never let people talk for too long before he would bring musicians on stage. recognized the value of, of music and also working with the Teatro Campesino with Luis Valdez, the importance of, of theater and other kinds of expressive culture to really connect with audiences. Now you document those days on the picket line and on the road. What were they like for Chunky? You know, he was very young at that time. He was basically 19. And so I think like a lot of young people, I mean, he was just very swept up with the political momentum that was going on at that time. This was really the first time that Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, were on the national stage because of Cesar Chavez. Really, for the first time, people were seeing, you know, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos in national news. He also really saw or understood the value of music in particular in terms of making political change. How big a part would you say Chunky Sanchez played in the creation of Chicano Park here in San Diego? Well, I think Chunky was part of a larger, you know, student movement that basically, you know, took back Chicano Park. I think many people may know the story of Chicano Park. We tell a little bit of that in the film. And of course, Chunky, he wrote a very, a very important song, Chicano Park Samba, which really recounts the story of how Chicano Park came into being. That little piece of land under the Coronado Bridge in San Diego is known to people everywhere as Chicano Park. Orale, raza, vamos al parque. Yeah. It began in 1970 under the Coronado Bridge in mi barrio in San Diego. Beyond that, Chunky was a member of the Chicano Park Steering Committee for most of his life. He, he was certainly there. Chicano Park Day is uh, always like the third Saturday of April, and Chunky was usually there as the MC, playing music and engaging with people from the community and from, from around the state. What do you want people to learn about Chunky Sanchez through your documentary? I think Chunky provides a very good example of the power of young people. You know, Chunky was, at the time that a lot of the actions were taking place, a young person, and we see that the Chicano movement was really powered by young people, as many social movements really are powered by young people. I think we see the example of what a young activist can do. Obviously, Chunky was a musician, and he found, you know, his own method, I guess, for being engaged with, with the larger social world. And I think that he really gives inspiration to, let's say, other young people to sort of look at their own skills and see how they can apply their skills to making change in the world. We shall continue to live, my brother. We shall continue to fight, my brother.
one of the things that I was always really impressed with about Chunky was that he was somebody very dedicated to his community, somebody who was really involved with building community throughout his career. Chunky continued to be active really all through to the end of his life in 2016. Really throughout his career, Chunky was very involved with his community and with really trying to make change in the community. The documentary Singing Our Way to Freedom debuts on KPBS tomorrow, November 3rd. And I've been speaking with the film's director, Paul Espinosa. Paul, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Maureen. Great to talk to you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.